If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9. Luke is the um, third book in the New Testament. So if you hit the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to the ninth chapter. We've been studying the book of Luke. For those of you who have maybe not been with us before, or not for that much of, of for not, not that long, we are in the book of Luke and have been here for a good while. Um, and since about the middle of chapter eight, we've been asking and answering the question, "Who is Jesus?" That sounds like a simple question, but yet there's a lot of different answers and nuances to understanding who Jesus is. And here in chapter nine, verses twenty-eight through thirty-six, we're going to get a final answer of sorts, which is immediately followed by a powerful command. And I think that this command that we're going to see is actually the culmination, not of just this passage, but in fact, from chapter 8, verse 22, all the way up until the command that shows up in this passage, I think it's all pushing towards this one three-word command that God is going to give to us. It's a command that comes from God himself, and it's rooted in the revelation of the person and nature of Jesus Christ that we've been tracing for some time. We've been tracing it, like I said, since back in chapter 8, verse 22, where where Jesus meets the disciples in a boat, and a storm shows up on the sea, and the disciples have no idea what to do, and they're crying out for help, and Jesus comes and he calms the waters with the words of his mouth. And you know what the response of the disciples is? They say, who then is this? Who is this man? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. And we find in that that Jesus is the Lord of creation. And the next scene is, is Jesus meeting a man possessed with literally thousands of demons. And no one could do anything to contain them. But Jesus, with a word, cast out all of these demons. And we find that Jesus is the Lord over demons and all the powers of darkness. He then is... Uh, encountered by a woman who had been ill for 12 years and not a single person could help her and yet almost by accident <laughs> Jesus heals her and 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 we find that Jesus is the lord over disease and then in the midst of that he he meets a young girl a 12 year old girl who had just died and he raises her from the dead again with just the word of his mouth we find Jesus is the lord over death itself Chapter 9 begins, Jesus takes this authority that he has, and he actually gives it to his disciples. And the disciples experience firsthand the authority and the power of Jesus, and they go out and work many of the same miracles in the power that Jesus has given them. And then after that, he feeds 5,000 men, not to mention women and children, with five loaves and, and two fish, and he shows that he is the Messiah that provides and makes full. So we're getting this picture of who he is, and and the crowds, and we find Herod in this, they, they can't decide who Jesus is. Some people think he's John back from the dead, or maybe Elijah, or one of the prophets that's that's returned, and no one is, is understands who he is, but Peter proudly proclaims that Jesus is what? He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the one that we have been waiting for. And while everyone is, is chiming in on who Jesus is, and we're seeing different ideas about who Jesus is, here in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, we find that, that Jesus, in a sense, pulls back the curtain to reveal who he is, and God himself answers the question, who is Jesus? Isn't that amazing? God is going to answer the question that we've all been asking. Everyone's giving their answers, and Jesus is showing in different works, but God is going to speak with a voice from on high as the final authority as to who Jesus Christ is. 
I'm not sure about at your house, but at our house we have discussions on various topics, usually around dinner time, and, and and sometimes we're not sure what the right answer is. Maybe it's you know who was in this television show or or how do you spell this word? You know, it's random things like that. And so very often after dinner, where do we go? We go to Google. <laughs> because, you know, Google is the final authority, and everything that the Internet says is true, right? <laughs> Not really, of course. But but we do give it a lot of weight, and it's, it's kind of, you know, if you're having a discussion with someone, you say, well, Google it, and we'll figure out who's right. Google is not the final authority, but God is the final authority, isn't it? So, so if God's going to say something about the person of Jesus, he is the final authority. So we should give a lot of weight to what God says to the answer to this question, who is Jesus? A lot more weight than if you Googled, who is Jesus? Let's see what God has to say. I, I want to read this passage in, in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Look with me. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, being Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James And went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. We said at the beginning, there's this all-important command that, that, that from 822, I feel like we've been pushing towards what the, this command. Did you see the command? It's in verse 35. It's very simple. Jesus, or God comes and he announces with authority who Jesus is. And then he says, listen to him. If you want to know the main point of the sermon this morning, this is it. Listen to Jesus. (laughs) I think that's the whole idea that that not only this passage, but again, all those verses are pushing towards listen to Jesus. It's it's not just to listen to him, but but rather to to let Jesus have the final authority in our lives. to, To let Jesus have the final say on every area of our lives. To not let anyone else or anything else, hold ultimate sway over us, but to let Jesus be the greatest and the definitive influence over all we think, say, and do. So when he tells us to suffer and be rejected and die, as we saw last week, that, that we would that we are willing to submit to his lordship over us and what he desires us to do. We are we want to let him reign as king over us and over every aspect of our lives, to let his word be the final word in what we say and what we do. That's quite a command. It sounds simple on the front, just listen to Jesus, but it's not just giving Jesus an ear. You know, well, I'll just kind of hear what he has to say. But we saw earlier in Luke, there's a way to hear and not hear. And there's a way to hear and really hear. 
And, and, and the hearing that, that truly hears, we need to take care how we hear because the, the hearing of Jesus that really truly hears is, is the hearing that responds with an obedient heart. It's to be, as we saw in that same passage, to be the seed that bears fruit. There, there are, the, what's the difference between all the seeds that we looked at? They all heard the word, but there was only one seed that heard the word and bore fruit. And Jesus is, God is telling us, listen to Jesus in that way, such that you have an obedient heart that places him as Lord. As James says, to, that we would not be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers. That's quite the command, isn't it? I mean, why, why would you let someone have complete lordship over you in that way? Whatever he says, that will I do. That's, that's, that's big. Why should Jesus and his word be the final authority in our lives? Why would we enthrone Jesus as king of our lives? Because, you know, I kind of want to be king over my life. I'd, I'd like to be in control of what I say and do and where I go. And But Jesus is to be in charge. Well, think about this. The command to listen to Jesus, what's it flow from? It flows from the answer to the question, who is Jesus? So if we understand who he is, that will compel us to listen to him. Who Jesus is, is what compels us to listen to him as our Lord and Savior. So beyond what we have already seen in these chapters, what about this passage says, what in this passage do we find about who Jesus is? Let's, let's kind of follow the narrative here. So we were in verse 28 is, is where we're at. We find that Luke says this happened about eight days later. Point being about a week. Matthew and Mark say six days. Luke says about eight days. They'll make a big deal out of that. They're just saying about a week later. <laughs> this happened. And we find that Jesus takes Peter and, and James and John up onto a mountain with him to pray. This mountain is either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon or Mount Carmel. Again, don't know. And the point is the disciples say it's not, it's not the mountain that matters. It's what happens on this mountain that really matters. And so he, it comes up here, and they, they went up, why? To pray. This should become very obvious that, that Jesus is a man of prayer. Have we seen this throughout the book of Luke? I mean, he just, he's, he's always praying. He's always praying. And it would seem that so many significant events in the life of Jesus are either preceded by prayer, or they proceed from prayer. Prayer is vitally important for us as Christians. This is kind of a, a side note, and yet it's here, and so we need to, to say it. Prayer is vitally important. It should be at the heart of every follower of Jesus. Our lives should be marked by consistent and constant prayer. We could even legitimately say, based on this passage, that it's prayer that ushers us into the presence of God, into the presence of his glory and of his power, and it's, and it's prayer that invites that power and that presence into our lives. It allows the light of the kingdom to shine forth in the present. We are invited to, to boldly approach God in his throne room, to kneel before him as the king of the universe, and to know that he hears us because of Jesus. We are invited to seek his presence and his power in this age. So, I just want to say, may we be like Jesus. Let's be people of Prayer. And let's be a church that prays and thereby we, we see the glory and the power of God and we also see the glory and the power of God breaking into the present day in, in what we are seeking to do as, as people of God. 
It says here that as Jesus was praying, verse 21, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His face is, is changed and his, his clothes become dazzling white. Literally, they became white like lightning. And it wasn't that his clothes changed, but, but that the glory of Jesus radiated from his physical body such that his clothes became engulfed in white light. Just get that picture in your head. And so, so here we find our first answer to this question, who is Jesus? And we see this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. I shamelessly steal that from the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1. <laughs> Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. This is a, a visible picture of what the author of Hebrews is describing. You know, Moses is in this passage, isn't he? And I think Moses is there to cause us actually to think back. We read from, from Exodus earlier in our reading, but, but there's another passage in Exodus as well, in Exodus chapter 34. Moses had to go back up on the mountain. We saw first that he received the law, you remember that? And then he comes down and there's the golden calf, and what's he do with those tablets? He throws them down, and he, he crushes them. And so there need to be new tablets made. And, and Moses goes up onto the mountain, uh, the Mount Sinai again. Again, a, a mountain. You see the parallels here. Jesus is on a mountain. They're on, they're on a mountain again. And Moses goes up on the, on the mountain, and he hears from God. He records the law, and he stays on that mountain with God and without food for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a miraculous thing. And after he comes off the mountain, this is what Exodus says, beginning in verse, Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Can you imagine the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face to, to, to shield this bright light that was emanating from his face. But the, but the light of Moses' face, what happens? It eventually fades. Because it was there because he was in the presence of God. The presence of God was radiating on him such that his face began to show him. But having not been in the presence of God, the, the light of his face slowly faded. So what's unique here is that the glory of God is, is not reflecting off of Jesus. It's radiating from Jesus himself. In and of himself, Jesus shines forth the glory of God. We are people that are created in God's image, and we are to reflect the glory of God. Even as children of, of God, by faith in Christ, we are to reflect the glory of God. But Jesus doesn't reflect the glory of God. Jesus radiates the glory of God. It comes from within who he actually is. So to say that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God is in fact to say that Jesus is God himself. And if he is God himself, if that's true, then we should listen to him. <laughs> if he is the radiance of the glory of God, if he is God himself, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Can you imagine being there? In my mind's eye, it kind of happens in the early morning, maybe before the sun rose. That seems to be when Jesus is out praying on the mountain so often. 
And so the brightness of his glory lights up the top of this mountain like a lightning strike. Think when you've seen a lightning strike. It Just imagine the light of that strike, and it never fades. <laughs> it's just sitting on that mountain. Imagine what the people below the mountain looked up and, what is going on up there? And, and, and Peter and James and John are there to see it. Well, they almost missed it. <laughs> As a, because they were sleeping. Do you see that? Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Maybe you feel that way right now. Um, but they, <laughs> they almost missed it. I mean, has that ever happened to you? Something amazing is going on and you miss it because you fall asleep? Uh, last 4th of July, we took our kids out to see fireworks. And, uh, you know, it's got to get dark. It got later and later and later. I think half of them were asleep by the time the fireworks went off. We kept trying to wake them up. No, I don't care. They fell asleep. You got to be careful when you fall asleep. You miss you miss out on stuff. You got to be careful when you fall asleep in church. <laughs> My dad told me a story about his uh, his cousin who fell asleep in church, and um, it was near the end of the service, and and he woke up, and there were people that were walking down the aisle. So he got up and he started walking down the aisle, thinking the service was over. <laughs> he realized it was an invitation. <laughs> he got about halfway down the aisle and turned around and sat back down. <laughs> you got to be careful about falling asleep. But you might miss out on something, something important. And verse 32 tells us that the disciples, they were, they were fast asleep while all this was happening. And yet, I wonder if it's, if it's just the brightness, you know, when your eyes are closed, but, but you can see a light turn on. I mean, imagine this, a lightning strike, boom. I think I'd wake up. And so their, their eyes, they, they wake up, their eyes adjust to the, to the brightness as you do in the morning, and they see Jesus standing there. But they see two other guys with him. Verse 30 tells us who they were. Behold, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And the first question we should ask is, why them? Elijah keeps showing up, doesn't he? He's all over this. I, I'm, I'm continually surprised how often Elijah is, is, is mentioned here. I need to read First and Second Kings a little bit more, I think. Um, so why these two guys? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One is, is the unique way that they, they went into heaven. Uh, Moses was, they say, buried by God. He went up on the mountain. No one saw his, his dead body. He was buried by God. And Elijah, you remember that story, he's caught up in the chariot of fire. He, that's how he gets to heaven. So they both had these unique deaths. They both, in fact, had encounters with God on Mount Sinai. So Moses was on Mount Sinai and received the law and, and saw, was, was actually engulfed in that cloud in the glory of God. And, and Elijah had an experience on Mount Sinai too. We all know the one that he had on Mount Carmel where he calls down fire from heaven. But he also had this experience in 1 Kings 19. If you've never read it, go to 1 Kings 19. That's the one where, where God comes to him in a still small voice. He sees the presence of God. He hears the voice of God there on Mount Sinai. So they both are back on mountains. But I think they also, they represent something. They represent the law and the prophets. Moses is the one who received the law from God and gave it to the people. And Elijah is one of the greatest of the prophets, one of the last great prophets. And he, and he speaks forth for God. And so they are there kind of representing the law and the prophets of the old, they're representing the, the, the full understanding of the, of the Old Testament. And not only that, but they're, they're kind of representing bookends of that revelation. So Moses is the giver of that first covenant law, but Elijah is the one that's to come in the end times, right? He's the, always the one that, that precedes the coming of the Messiah. And so we see sort of this timeline where we have Moses, of course Abraham's 
back here, but but Moses, the the receiver and the giver of the law, and then Elijah, the one that's going to announce the coming of the Messiah. So there's this huge picture that's that's going on here, and 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 Peter is just thrilled. I mean, he sees the glory of God, and he, he's seen Moses and Elijah. And when it looks like the party's breaking up, he, he, he tries to find some way to keep everyone there. So he says, I, I've got an idea. Why don't we, um, let's build some booths. Let's build some tents. Uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Literally, the word could be tabernacle. It's probably a reference like to the, to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. These were shelters that the children of Israel would make to, to commemorate their time in the wilderness. But it was a time of joy and celebration, and so maybe that's, that's what he's thinking. He says, let's, let's build these. I think there's a desire in his heart to honor all three of them, but also not to let this moment pass, you know. He's enjoying what's going on. He doesn't want it to be over. But it's kind of hard to know exactly what Peter was thinking. Because Peter didn't even know what he was thinking. <laughs> That's what it says, doesn't it? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. <laughs> there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people when they don't know what to say, they stay quiet. And there's people that when they don't know what to say, they just start talking. <laughs> Peter is the latter. <laughs> and so he just starts talking. But in response to this idea, what happens? It's as he is speaking is what verse... 34 says, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud comes down and overshadows them. It could be that it just overshadowed uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. It could be that it overshadowed all six of them. But this cloud descends on them and they are engulfed in it. Again, this is hearkening back to the, to the Old Testament. You saw it when we read in Exodus um, 24, when, when Trevor read uh, it's this Old Testament picture of the glory and the presence of God. This this cloud, this cloud had been what what went before the children of Israel to guide them. It's what rested with them and, and lit up like a fire, a pillar of fire at night. It's this same cloud that engulfed Moses on Mount Sinai as he received the law from God. It's the cloud that descends in the tabernacle and the cloud that later will descend in the temple that rec- that represents the glory of and the presence of God himself. And so this cloud, the presence and the glory of God, descends on this mountain. I just can't imagine being there. And what's what's their reaction? They're filled with fear. Uh, That's the right reaction. What's going to happen here? And Peter's probably the most scared because it seems like his words are what brought this about, right? I mean, he said this and now it's happening. I mean, what is... And yet, out of the cloud, God speaks. You remember back in in, in um, the baptism of Jesus, that the cloud split and the dove comes out and Jesus speaks and we said, what's he going to say? You know, the, rend the heavens and come down. It, it's often coming in judgment. But he comes in peace in that moment. What's it going to be like now? What's going to happen to Peter and James and John? They're scared. He comes down and he says, This is my son, my chosen one. At the baptism, he spoke to Jesus. He says, You are my son, my beloved son. Here he says to the disciples, and I think to us, This is my son. My chosen one, my anointed one. So who is Jesus? He's the radiance of the glory of God, and he is the chosen son of God. 
He's the chosen Son of God. Again, he is, he is God in the flesh. He is God's chosen Messiah. He's the deliverer that everyone has been, has been waiting for. God, in fact, in, in sort of rebuking what Peter said in this moment, confirms what Peter said earlier in chapter 9 when he said, you are the Christ. God says to Peter, you're wrong about this whole thing with the building of booths, but you're right. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's not just another human being. And he's not some human being filled with the Spirit of God for a moment. He's not any of those things. He is the Son of God. He is God himself. And in light of that, God says, listen to him. Listen to If that's who he is, listen to him. And we are to listen to no one else. No one else. No other religious authority, past or present. No other cultural phenomenon. No one on television or the internet. We are to listen to Jesus alone because we see that cloud descends. And when the cloud disappears, the disciples find that Moses and Elijah have also disappeared. They look up and what does the text say? It says they saw Jesus was found alone. Jesus alone. Who is Jesus I think what we're going to see, let me, let me explain this, but let me give the point first. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament shadows. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament shadows. The main problem with Peter's request is that it puts Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. But that is not the case. We can't make three equal booths for Moses and Elijah and Jesus because Jesus is exalted above them. He, in fact, is the fulfillment of everything that they stood for and everything that they were. Moses, Moses talked with God face to face. That's amazing. Moses talked with God face to face. But when Jesus' face is altered, it's the face of God himself. He doesn't talk with God face to face. He is the face of God. Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet. He spoke the words of God. What an amazing thing to be one that speaks the words of God. But Jesus is the word of God. He is the word of God made flesh. He is greater than Elijah. He doesn't just speak the words of God. He himself is the word of God. Jesus is greater than all they represent. He's greater than the law in the Old Testament. He says that he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. He came to complete it, to show what it really means. And so the disciples are no longer to listen to Moses primarily, but to listen to Jesus and his view and his understanding of the law with eyes that have seen and ears that have heard what Jesus says and who he is. That, that changes everything, that we, the way that we think about the law. And all the prophets, including Elijah, spoke of Jesus. That's who they were talking about. Jesus says this later on in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus. After his resurrection, he is, he is veiled and he's walking with these two guys and, and talking with them. And they're so sad that Jesus had died. And he says, why are you so sad? Didn't this have to happen? And then Luke tells us that Jesus says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Moses and all the prophets are about Jesus. Now, do Moses and the prophets still have value? Yes, of course. I mean, that's why we give you reading plans to read through the whole Old Testament. It's a lot bigger than the new. 
But the Old Testament, it has authority, but only in light of who Jesus is. We must read the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. We must see the Old Testament as filled with glorious shadows. I think that's great. Think about this. The Old Testament is filled with glorious shadows. Who is the light? Jesus. Jesus standing on the mountain bright like lightning is the one that casts those shadows. So we look to the Old Testament, we see these things. But don't focus on the shadows. Find the light. Find the light that is causing those shadows. So read your Old Testaments. Read them and see Jesus. That's what I love about the Jesus Storybook Bible curriculum we do with these with the kids. Because it, as it says, every story whispers His name. Sometimes the stories just shout His name out loud. But sometimes it's there. we got to find it. So Peter was putting Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. That's not right. But another problem with Peter's desire to build these tents to let this holy moment continue is that he would be keeping Jesus from his mission, from the reason he had been sent to earth, and from even the topic of conversation that you see here. We skipped over to verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, what are they talking about? Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The departure of Jesus. That's a euphemism for his death. They're speaking about Jesus' death. Think about that. Moses and Elijah. Jesus on the mountain. What are they talking about? Talking about the death of Jesus. You know what that word literally is? You might have a note in your Bible. Exodus. <laughs> they were speaking of Jesus' exodus. If you don't have that note in your Bible, I encourage you to, to write it in the margin. The word there is exodus. Now, in the midst of all this Old Testament imagery, we, we can't just pass over this and think, oh, you just used that word because it was the word he wanted to use. There's significance here. I mean, Moses is present. They're on the mountain with the fire. The cloud comes down. Something's going on here that's hearkening back to the Old Testament. And the exodus of the Israelites was was the ultimate Old Testament picture of the salvation that God would bring. Remember, the children of Israel had had gone down to Egypt, um, and, and and when they went down initially, they weren't slaves. But after Joseph was forgotten, they become slaves in Egypt, and they cry out to God day and night. God send us a deliverer, send someone to rescue us. And Moses comes, and Moses comes as the deliverer, and he keeps going to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh continues to say, no. And then he says, yes, but no. And he says, no, and no. And so God starts to bring plagues, one after the other. Nine plagues, and then he brings the tenth plague. It's the greatest plague of them all. The plague of the firstborn, that that the angel of death is going to pass over the land of Israel and kill all of the firstborn Except he provides, he provides a means of salvation, doesn't he? He tells the children of Israel, he says, what you need to do is you need to get a lamb, a spotless lamb, and I want you to kill that lamb, and then you're going to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house. And when the angel of death passes over you, if he sees the blood, then he will, he will pass over, and, and the firstborn of your house will be spared. And it's out of that that, that Pharaoh comes and says, not yes, you can leave, but get out of here. Leave now before you destroy all of Egypt. 
And so the children of Israel are delivered and they plunder Egypt and they go out and they cross the Red Sea and God brings salvation to the children of Israel. This is no accident then that that Jesus' death is called the Exodus. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. Here's, Here's the last thing I think we see. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who he is. That's, that's what's going on here. That's what, that's what Luke wants us to see. That's what God wants us to see. That's what Jesus wants us to see. That he's speaking of his exodus, of, of his departure, of, of what he's going to do through his death. No one talks about their death like this. He spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Who speaks of accomplishing their death? His death has meaning. And again, this is that fulfillment of the Old Testament shadow because what does Jesus do? Jesus, in, in, in Luke chapter 22 and in all of the Gospels, he comes to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He comes to the Passover and he takes this, this picture of the Old Testament deliverance of the children of Israel and he says, yeah, that, that's what it was about then, but let me totally transform what this means. And he institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is Luke 22:15, verse 16 then says, For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then verse 19, and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That the lamb that was slain is this picture of Jesus. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's God himself. But he's the Lamb of God who lays down his life. And by laying down his life, he accomplishes something. He does something. His death is not fruitless. He accomplishes the salvation of the world. He accomplishes the exodus. The deliverance of people that are in bondage and enslaved. He accomplishes the greater exodus. The exodus, it means nothing in light of what Jesus has done. He led captive, captives, he led us out of captivity. He, he, he frees us. And not just from physical slavery, but from slavery to sin and from death that reigns over us. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the Son of God, the chosen Son of God. He is the fulfillment of every Old Testament shadow. All the Old Testament is just pushing and pointing towards Jesus. And even in light of all of that, He is the Lamb of God who dies, who takes our sin upon Himself, who is inaugurates the new covenant with His blood. He comes and He says, you are enslaved to sin and you cannot free yourself, but I've come to provide exodus and I provide it through my death. 
and through my resurrection. And so he comes in his death and he takes all the sin that we have committed and he takes it upon himself. And God pours out his wrath on Jesus. We're the ones that deserve it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned. We are the lambs that deserve to die. But Jesus is the lamb of God who is our substitute and dies in our place. If that's who Jesus is, listen to him. Listen to him. If if he's the Lord of creation and the Lord over demons and the Lord over disease and the Lord over death and the Messiah who provides and makes full, if he is the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's better than Elijah. He's not Moses, he's better than Moses. He's not John the Baptist, he exceeds John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I can't even tie his shoes. But he is The Christ, He is the chosen one. He is the Son of God. And if that's who He is, then listen to Him. And I just plead, listen to Him. If you are not a Christian here today, I'm calling you to lay down your life, to put Jesus on the throne, to dethrone yourself, and to say that Jesus is King. That He died in my place. He is the only hope that I have for salvation, and I will let Him be Lord of my life. That's what salvation looks like. And I'm calling you to that. It is the life of of laying down your life, of suffering and death, and the greatest joy that you will ever find in your life. But I also want to say, this is Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's listen to him. We've let other voices come in. Maybe, maybe we even maybe you've even gone back to the Old Testament. And you start looking at the Old Testament and think, well, I should do these. And Jesus is better than Moses and the law and the prophets. Maybe, maybe there's voices in the present day that are speaking to you that are telling you this is what you need to do. This is how you need to live. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. Let Jesus dictate that. No one else. Listen to Jesus and listen to him alone. And let's not just hear, but let's obey him. Let's have no other authorities. No one has a voice like Jesus in our lives. Let, let's let, 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 let that be true. That no one has the final authority in our lives except for Jesus. Not even me. I, I don't have the author, final authority in my life. I don't have the final authority in your life for sure. But I don't even have the final authority in my life that Jesus does. And if he wills me to suffer and to be rejected and to die, then I will do it. Let us be eager to hear his word. Let us be people that, that pick up the book and say, Jesus, speak to me. Tell me what you want me to do, and I will listen. I'm ready to hear. Let us be eager to hear from his people as we gather together. People speak truth. Let us be eager to listen. This is who Jesus is, and if this is who Jesus is, then we must, we must listen to him.